As we prepare to open God's word, let's pray and ask that he would bless it to us. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear, read, learn, and inwardly digest them, that through the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. And if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Zechariah chapter 5. We'll be considering the entirety of that chapter this evening. And uh, we've been going through for the past uh, month and a half or so, a series through Zechariah, during, mostly during the evening service. And uh, we've been, for most of the time, in this section of Zechariah that, uh, where Zechariah is recounting a series of visions that the Lord uh, gave him in the span of one night. Uh, the Lord gave to him a series of eight visions. And we come this evening to the sixth and the seventh visions. We'll cover both of those as they have kind of a unified theme um, this evening. So we'll cover uh, visions six and seven this evening in chapter five of Zechariah. So our reading for this evening, Zechariah chapter five, and pay careful attention for this is God's own word. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width 10 cubits. <clears throat> then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. So far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, I'm sure many of you have wondered what the proper protocol is if the Lord ever uh, inflicts your house with a case of, uh, of fungus, of mildew, or some other kind of fungus in the walls that you can't get out. And uh, Leviticus 14 is actually very helpful for us here in answering that question of what is the proper protocol. First, you are to call the priest, and he comes and inspects the walls of the house, and if he does indeed determine that there's some kind of fungus in the walls, you shut the house up for seven days and wait. If it's still there after seven days, you remove the stones that have the mildew in them, and you bring them outside of the camp and put them in an unclean place, and you replace them with new stones. 
And if you wait even another seven days and the, and the mildew is still spreading, it won't go away, it's a persistent case, the house needs to be destroyed altogether, reduced to rubble, and you bring all of the remains of the house, all of the rubble, outside of the camp to an unclean place. It needs to be removed from the camp completely. Well, I hope it uh, goes without saying, but uh, we should not really do this if we find a case of, uh, of mildew in the walls of our house. This is maybe no longer uh, the proper, proper to call a priest to take, to take a look at it anymore. Um, this protocol is part of Israel's purity laws, part of the ceremonial law which was given to Israel on Mount Sinai. We read about this in Leviticus. And uh, we often come to uh, texts like this in scripture and, and uh, regulations like this and wonder to ourselves, what does, what does this kind of thing have to do with us? Uh, why are we given this? Why bother uh, talking about these kind of purity regulations? What does this have to do with us today? But God was teaching Israel something through these purity regulations, through ones like uh, this, this one with the house and other, and the whole ceremonial law. He was teaching them uh, something through these laws that, that seem so confusing and foreign to us today. He was teaching them about the nature of sin, that it's polluting and that it's disgusting, like a mildew that you can't get out of the walls of your house. And also that it creates separation from God, that if you go inside this unclean house, you can't go to the temple, you can't go to God's house and worship him there. Sin creates separation from God. And just as God provided a way to purify from this pollution that you tear down the house and bring it outside the camp, and that takes care of this pollution in the midst of the camp, so God will provide a way to deal with sin. This teaches them as well. He himself will provide a way to deal with sin so his people can dwell in his presence. As we'll see, these two visions of Zechariah that we're considering this evening are really drawing on this imagery uh, from, from the purity system, this imagery of the, dispose, of the uh, destruction and disposal of this house that's been infested with mildew. Um, particularly. It's using this imagery, using similar imagery to describe how God is going to deal once and for all with the problem of sin in the land of Judah. There's two visions, as I've mentioned in this chapter, the sixth and seventh visions. We find uh, both. So you see in verse one, uh, I lifted up my eyes and saw. And then we see in verse five again, a new vision. Uh, he came forward to me and said, lift up your eyes and see. So two uh, visions that we're covering. And these really have a unified message, these two visions that we're considering this evening. As the temple is being rebuilt, we've said this a number of times, as God's presence is returning to the land of Judah, it's important that, uh, that the people recognize what this means. It means not only that God's presence is returning to dwell in their midst, but it means also that the people themselves and the land that God will inhabit must be holy, that it must be holy. And so the message of these visions of Zechariah 5 is a very simple one for the people of Judah and for us today, that God himself will cleanse his land of all sin. That is the message of these visions for us today. And there's three things that we see in this passage that, uh, that describe for us how God will cleanse the land of sin. Three, three things that he does. First, we see that he exposes sin. So that'll be our first point, exposes sin. And then God exterminates sin. Our second point, exterminates sin. And third, he expels sin. So those will be our three points for this evening, exposing sin, 
uh, exterminating sin and expelling sin. So our first point, exposing sin. And this really comes out through the vision of the flying scroll that we find uh, beginning in verse 1, this exposing of sin. The interpreting angel, this angel that we've seen in a number of visions who dialogues with Zechariah, who answers his questions, explains uh, things to him, he begins, as he often does, by asking Zechariah a question. He asks him what he sees in verse 2. And Zechariah answers. He sees, he tells us what he sees, what we, uh, what we learned the vision was going to be about. In verse 1, he says, I see a flying scroll. The scroll is flying. And what that implies for us is a couple of things. It implies that this is a fast scroll, that it, that it can move at a fast speed, right? We think of uh, things that can fly as faster than things that can go on the ground, right? If you wanted to get to the East Coast quickly, you'd probably take a plane versus drive there. The scroll can move quickly. Also, this scroll sees everything, and it can go anywhere. It has greater mobility. It's not limited like something on the ground, right? You can't drive to Europe, but you can take a plane there. You can fly to Europe. You can see more from a higher vantage point, from an aerial view. So this scroll is fast, and it can see everything, and it can go everywhere. It's flying. And what we learn as well in verse 2 is that this flying scroll is huge, this is, a, this is an enormous scroll that Zechariah sees. It's, um, we learn that its length is 20 cubits and its width is 10 cubits. So in other words, it's approximately 32 feet long and 16 feet wide. This is bigger than by far in terms of surface area than any scroll that has been uncovered from the ancient world. This is really the size of a billboard that you might pass on the highway. An enormous billboard, flying billboard that Zechariah sees in this vision, clearly not a flying or not a uh, not a normal scroll by any means. And what is this huge flying billboard that Zechariah sees in this vision? Well, the angel tells him in verse three what it is. He says, "This that is the this uh, flying scroll is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land." So this scroll is a curse scroll. Now, this word for curse that's used here is often used in context of covenantal curses. Um, one party will swear to keep the terms of the covenant, and if they don't, they agree that they will come under the curses of the covenant. That's this word that's used here, um, that if you break the covenant, you come under its curses. This is the curse scroll. And usually, billboards have something written on them, don't, don't they? We don't expect to drive down the highway and see a bunch of empty billboards. We expect advertising or something written on them. And that is uh, the case indeed with this scroll as well. It's no exception to that rule. In verse 3, everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. So this curse scroll, this flying billboard, has writing on both sides of it, uh, which is quite abnormal. Again, this is, not a, this is not an ordinary scroll by any means. And on one side, the writing declares that the one who steals will be cleaned out. And on the other side, the writing declares that the one who swears falsely will be cleaned out. So probably we should understand what's written on either side of this scroll is the law of God, God's holy law. Israel entered into a covenant with God at Mount Sinai, agreeing to obey God's law. And in Deuteronomy, we read that those who disobey God's law are under a curse for disobedience. So this curse scroll proclaims God's law, 
and it brings the curse for disobedience of that law. That's the purpose of this scroll. And this vision of a curse scroll that Zechariah sees really implies that there's a problem in the land of Judah. It wouldn't be necessary if there wasn't sin and injustice in the land. It's clear that there is injustice, that there is sin in the land of Judah that needs to be dealt with. And it seems that probably based on uh, what the particular uh, laws that Zechariah mentions uh, in, from this vision here, that there were some people who were exploiting this uh, weakness of, Ju- of Judah after their return from exile, exploiting the situation when there was no king in the land to administer justice, to make sure that the poor and the oppressed were being taken care of. Um, this, this vision mentions uh, two things, really one kind of complex sin that, uh, that was particularly easy to exploit, many thought. Um, because under Israelite law, God himself was the final court of appeal. He was like the supreme court of, of Israel. There was no higher court to which you could appeal than God himself. And we get some examples of times when a crime is committed and there are no witnesses, and one person accuses another person, and that person who is accused can go before the Lord and swear that he has not committed this crime, swear in God's name that he is innocent of this crime, that, uh, that um, he didn't uh, commit the crime of which he's being accused. There's no witnesses in this situation, so only God can execute uh, true justice in that situation um, to determine if that person is really guilty or not. And probably um, in Judah, after the exile, many were exploiting this system. It was particularly probably easy to exploit in this, uh, in this context. Uh, and we get uh, both stealing and swearing falsely in God's name, so stealing from their neighbors, and then when they were accused of it, swearing that they had not committed that crime, swearing that, uh, that they were innocent of that crime of stealing. But I think uh, these sins that are mentioned, this was probably particularly a problem, this, uh, this kind of uh, stealing and then swearing to a lie in God's name, but they're also representative for us because we have one sin here which is against neighbor, uh, stealing from another person. And we have another sin here which is against God, swearing falsely in God's name, swearing that uh, a lie is the truth in God's name. And so probably this is meant, these sins are meant to represent God's entire law, um, all sins against God and neighbor. And thus far, these people have largely gone unpunished. They have largely not been, um, not been convicted or punished for these crimes. They're exploiting this, this system of justice. They're oppressing the weak and the poor. And now Zechariah sees this vision of a curse scroll a heavenly curse scroll, and God's law, God's holy law is written on both sides of this scroll, declaring a curse for those who disobey his holy law. This curse scroll sees all, it travels quickly. It not only knows where justice needs to be executed, but it's able to execute that justice. It seems like Judah's justice system is easy to exploit. It seems like God is absent. But this vision makes very clear to especially the poor and the oppressed that God sees, he knows about the injustice in the land, that all the sin in the land of Judah is exposed, it's laid bare before him, as we uh, see in verse 3, in all the land, it says. 
and God promises to do something about it. And this is a really helpful reminder for us in our day and age, as there's so much injustice and oppression in the world and in our country, nations at war against nations, people forced to leave their homes, leave their homelands. Um, In our country, more and more who simply do what is right in their own eyes without concern for God or for neighbor. The church in many parts of the world is forced into hiding because of persecution from the government and from, uh, from others for fear that they will be, uh, that they will be killed or, or, uh, or physically persecuted for their faith. Here, oftentimes, uh, Christianity is viewed as, as silly or strange or a superstition of some kind. And it can often seem to us like God doesn't care, like he doesn't see, like he doesn't know what's happening. He's turning a blind eye to all of this injustice and persecution and sin. And we can ask ourselves, does he see, will he act? And this vision answers those questions for us. It makes clear to us that God does see, that he does know the injustice, that nothing is hidden from him, that all sin is exposed and laid bare before him. This injustice, this unrepentant sin that we read about in this passage and that we continue to see in our day is like mildew, is like fungus that you can't get out of the wall of your house. It's disgusting. It's polluting. It causes separation from God. But just as in the case that we saw in Leviticus, God provides a way to deal with this problem. And we see this in this passage as well. He provides uh, a, a solution for sin, exterminating that sin, which brings us to our second point. If God is uh, returning to dwell with his people in a rebuilt temple, uh, his presence is returning to their midst, the sin in the land needs to be dealt with, right? We've said this a number of times. We saw that wonderful third vision of a wall of consuming fire around the Jerusalem of the future, around the new Jerusalem, Uh, giving us a vivid depiction of God's holiness, that nothing unholy can enter that that city, that it must be a holy city altogether. And in verse 3, God promises that he will exterminate the sin and injustice in the land. He says, everyone who steals shall be cleaned out. Broadly speaking, everyone who does not love their neighbor as they ought will 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 face this extermination. Everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out broadly. Everyone who does not love God as they ought will face this extermination of the curse scroll. And we get more detail on this uh, extermination in verse 4. I will send it. Uh, In other words, I'll send the curse scroll out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it both timber and stones. So we saw how God provided a solution for that house in Leviticus that you just can't get the mold out of. It needs to be torn down. It needs to be reduced to rubble. And so here, God provides a solution for all the pollution in the land, all this pollution of sin in the land, all the injustice and oppression and sin uh, through this curse scroll. It needs to be exterminated. These houses need to be torn down, reduced to rubble. And the curse scroll does this. It enters into the house. It remains there, and it consumes the entire house, timbers and stone, everything that is associated with this house is reduced completely to rubble. 
It completely uh, wipes out this house and its sin, wipes away all those who practice injustice, all those who oppress the poor in the land, all those who are committing sacrilege by swearing to a lie in God's name are wiped out entirely. And for the Judeans, this is really a promise that God will bring justice to the land, that God himself will administer justice in their land as they begin to rebuild, as people begin to move back in, as they uh, later will rebuild the walls of the city. And he does begin to bring this justice through the leaders he appoints. We've seen uh, in that vision of Joshua, the high priest, that God tasks him with, uh, with administering justice in a way that before the exile would have been done by the king. Uh, we've seen, we'll, we'll see, uh, we, uh, we won't see in this series, but we see in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that God does raise up governors, faithful governors, to rule his people and to uh, begin to administer that justice in the land. But this is not perfect, nor is it final justice that is brought through those people. Ultimately, this uh, vision is a picture for us of the day of judgment, of that great day of the Lord, the last and final day of judgment. God's holy law is, is righteous, and it is good. And he demands perfect obedience to that law. He can't dwell, as we've seen in that vision of the city with the wall of fire, with even one speck of sin, even one bit of sin, cannot dwell in God's holy presence. It must and it will be consumed. And those who disobey God's law will be justly condemned on the day of judgment. Cursed is everyone who does not obey all the things written in the book of the law. That's what Deuteronomy says. All the things written in the book of the law, those who do not obey them are under a curse. And if we're honest with ourselves, brothers and sisters, none of us have kept God's law perfectly as he requires. None of us have kept all the things written in the book of the law. None of us have loved God and neighbor with a perfect love. None of us have done God's will with a perfect desire and a perfect carrying out of that will. None of us have been as perfectly holy as our God is holy. We deserve, we all deserve to be under the punishment of this curse scroll and to be consumed, reduced to rubble, like these houses in Leviticus and in Zechariah's vision. This is why Paul writes in Galatians 3 that all who rely on the works of the law for salvation are under a curse. All who would desire to be justified by their own works are under a curse because no one can keep God's law perfectly. If we try to justify ourselves through obedience to the law, we'll be under that same curse that we see vividly portrayed for us through this scroll in Zechariah's fifth vision, sixth vision, excuse me. But does Paul say then, after he makes that pronouncement, that we ought to despair and give up hope because we can't justify ourselves? No, Paul says, repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ because there is one who has borne the curse in our place. He writes in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. In his death, Christ underwent the extermination that sin deserved, the curse of the, uh, the fate of that house in Leviticus torn down to rubble, the fate of the sacrilegious thief. A perfect man underwent those things, underwent the pangs of hell that you and I deserve so that you who believe in him might not have to undergo this curse yourself, but might be blessed. 
Sin needs to be exterminated. God cannot dwell with sin. But the question is if you will be exterminated trusting in yourself or if you will trust in the one who underwent this curse on your behalf. Now, the cleansing of the land of Judah is not complete yet, uh, as we see in this sixth vision, until every last bit of sin and pollution is removed from the land. It has to be removed completely from the land altogether, out of God's sight. And we see that in our third point, and in the second of these two visions in chapter 5, Zechariah's seventh vision. So we'll consider that under expelling sin, our third point. Um, This casting out of sin entirely comes out through uh, this vision, which begins in verse 5. Zechariah sees something leaving the land, and he asks what it is. And the angel identifies it. He says, this is a basket that's going out of the land. It's flying out of the land. And he also says what that basket represents. What is its meaning? This basket is iniquity, the angel says. So in other words, these houses of these sacrilegious thieves who were, which were consumed by the curse scroll, which were reduced to rubble, these houses of iniquity uh, uh, are being represented by this basket leaving the land. All the iniquity was, was picked up, all the rubble which was left was picked up and placed into this basket, and now it's leaving the land altogether. It's leaving the land for good and completely out of sight altogether. So the basket is iniquity, and there's also something in the basket. We find in verse 7, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket, Zechariah sees. So this basket has a heavy, a lead cover on top of it. And when the angel lifts up this cover, Zechariah sees inside a woman in in the basket, sitting in the basket. And who is this woman? We learn in verse 8 that her name is Wickedness. And probably we see a lot of connections between wickedness and idolatry and because of some other things we see in this vision, probably this woman is meant to represent or is probably what Zechariah sees is an idol of a a goddess, a figurine of a goddess. Maybe the Babylonian goddess Ishtar was one that would have been very well known at the time, but he probably sees a false idol inside that basket, uh, this woman, wickedness. In order for the iniquity from the land to be totally expelled, false worship and false gods need to be removed. That's why this woman is leaving the land inside this basket. She represents all the false worship and false gods uh, in the land which are being removed entirely because these things lead the people astray, right? The prophets before the exile say this again and again that false worship has led the people of Israel and the people of Judah astray. And so that needs to be removed so that the people will no longer be led astray by these false gods, by these idols, by these things which they set up alongside of or instead of God in their lives. If God is really returning, there's no room for these false gods. He will not tolerate false worship of any kind in in, uh, addition to him or in place of him. So in verse 8, the heavy lead cover is replaced Right? This, is a, this is an incredibly heavy cover. She can't remove it. She can't get out, this woman. God will remove her from the land entirely. He will remove iniquity and false worship from the land altogether. Now we learn in verse 9 how God removes this basket with, uh, with wickedness in it. There's two women with wings like storks who come to pick up this basket and carry it away. 
And if you thought that the imagery in Zechariah could not get any more bizarre, this could be the height of the strange imagery of Zechariah, these women with wings like storks. And I can't explain this imagery to you entirely, but I think it is significant that the stork is listed among the unclean birds in Leviticus. So it's appropriate bird to remove this iniquity and wickedness from the land. It's an unclean animal that the people were not allowed to eat. And this unclean bird flies this pollution and this iniquity and wickedness out of the land of Judah once and for all. We saw in, that, uh, in, in uh, the example from Leviticus that not only does that house need to be reduced to rubble, but it needs to be taken outside of the camp to an unclean place. And that's what these women are doing here with iniquity and wickedness. They're taking the uh, pollution of the land outside of the camp, outside of the land altogether, to an unclean place, to a garbage dump is basically what it is. And this garbage dump for pollution, we learn in verse 10, where Zechariah asks where they're taking it, and uh, the angel answers him, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Now, Shinar is Babylon. Shinar is sometimes a name that's used, a relatively uncommon one for Babylon, but it's used, uh, it's used a handful of times for Babylon in the Bible. This is where uh, the Israelites, of course, were exiled. This is where they had been brought into captivity. And now Babylon has become a toxic waste dump, this place where all the pollution of the land of Israel is being set down, is being, uh, is being placed. All the sin and curse of Judah goes to rest in Babylon. And just as God's temple, as Zechariah is receiving these visions, is being rebuilt in Jerusalem, this goddess, wickedness, and all the iniquity that's being removed from the land also gets its own temple in Shinar, right? The house of God, God's temple is often called his house, uh, the place where he dwells. And we see here at the very end that, uh, that this uh, basket, iniquity, and this woman, wickedness, are also getting a house, a temple in Babylon where they can be enthroned and worshipped in that place, this vision is sending a clear message to the Judeans who are oppressing and, and practicing injustice and iniquity, that if they want to live a life of iniquity and idolatry, if they want to oppress the poor, they can go back into exile and do that, that there is an appropriate place for that, and it's Babylon, back where they were taken from. They can reject the salvation which God has brought them and go back, but there is no place for it in God's land. Its place is in Babylon. And brothers and sisters, this same choice, this same message comes before us today. As we said, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by himself becoming a curse for us. He took that curse of the curse scroll upon himself. He became like the house, reduced to rubble. But not only that, he was also expelled for us. He was also sent to an unclean place for us. Um, like the rubble of the house which needs to be brought outside the camp, like the basket and the wickedness that need to leave the land, he was sent outside the gates of the city to be crucified for us, to take the curse upon himself. This is the connection that Hebrews 13 makes for us. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood, in order to exterminate all of our sin, in order to remove our sin from us, expel it from us as far as the east is from the west, forgiven and forgotten. 
And what does this mean for us then as we come to a close? What is this uh, that Christ has fulfilled both aspects, both the extermination of sin and its expelling for us? Well, the next verse of Hebrews 13 tells us what this means for us. It says, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Sin and iniquity, the wickedness, is worshipped all around us, isn't it? And it's tempting. It can be very tempting to worship fame and money and power, to, li- to worship the idea of living an easier, rule-free life, can't it? Fewer rules to follow, fewer restrictions. This is often what it can seem like. But we must not go back to that place. That is the place that God and Christ have brought us out of exile from, out from exile to that place. So today, put your faith in Christ. Go to Christ outside the camp. Bear the reproach that he endured. Seek to live a life which is pleasing to God in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you will dwell in God's holy land, the city that is to come that we hope for. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we confess in awe that you are a holy God who cannot look upon sin. But even as we marvel at your holiness, we look upon ourselves and recognize that by ourselves, even the most righteous among us is unworthy and unable to dwell in your presence. And so we give you great thanks and praise that you have made a way for poor sinners like us who deserve judgment and condemnation to dwell in your presence forever through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he underwent the judgment which sin deserves on the cross, undergoing the curse for us outside the gates of the city, so that through faith in him we might dwell with you forever. May we, through the power of your Holy Spirit, strive to be the holy people which you have made us more and more every day. Amen.